We're in, we started a series in the book of Romans a couple of weeks ago. I think this is week three. Uh, last week we did the first chapter of Romans, which, as I explained, if you missed that, go listen to it on the website or on YouTube. Uh, it's important foundationally for what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks, and really for the whole book of Romans, to understand Paul is telling a different story about humanity and what's wrong with it. And primarily what he says is that that humanity grew futile in their thinking because they rejected God. And the result of that was disordered desires. And namely, he mentioned our sexuality became disordered, going in all the wrong directions. Okay? And so that opens a can of worms. And instead of me going, was walking on past that can of worms, we're going to take the next couple of weeks to talk about that issue because it's going to take a couple of weeks. So if you're sitting here going, what in the world does uh, gender, sexuality, and the body have to do with Romans chapter 1? Well, we can't talk about sexuality without talking about gender and God's design for the human body. All right? So, I'm gonna, so we're gonna, not going to be in Romans this morning, but it connects to Romans next week. Okay? But we have to do some work first. Um, and so this is a controversial topic. And I want to just say a couple of things. One is, um, I'm not an expert in this, and I'm not even going to pretend to be, and I'm not going to do a lot of uh, arguing against all the bad ideas in the culture. Um, you can go to YouTube for that and get plenty of people destroying other people. Um, you know, this person gets destroyed by that person, this person. We're not, I'm not destroying people, all right? Uh, what I want to do instead is present to you what I hope is a compelling vision for a fully integrated human being. Because what's happened in our culture is the concept of the, the human body and what it's for, our sexuality and our gender have been separated, which creates a disintegrated humanity. And the, the, God gives us this vision for a fully integrated human where all those things come together and are meant. It's why we can't talk about them separately. It's a real mistake. You have to talk about God's plan for sexuality without talking about these other things because they all tie in together. And so that's the goal this morning, and I cannot talk about everything. I only have a couple of weeks, and I just cannot stand to talk about this more than maybe two or three weeks, all right? So I've done a couple of things to help you. One is I have some book recommendations, two book recommendations for you. One is a book by, this is my favorite. If you don't read any other books, read this one. It's called Embodied Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say by the guy with the best last name ever, Preston Sprinkle. That is his real name. Uh, His theology is great, and the way he talks about these things, his tone is really good. Um, Secondly, if you want to read another book, um, this one's fantastic. He's probably the preeminent biblical scholar talking about this issue. Mark Yarhouse, he wrote, he's got several books on it, my favorite is Understanding Sexual Identity, a Resource for Youth Ministry. I know it's for youth ministry, but especially if you've got kids, little, real little ones, teenagers, middle schoolers, kind of anywhere, any kids at all, that would be great for you. You can easily translate, it'll be obvious how to translate that into parenting and how to relate to your, understand your children better, especially if you're worried about what do I do if one of my kids says they're transgender and comes to me and tells me that, what do I do? How do I understand it? That book is great for that, all right? 
Um, those are two great books. The other thing I'm doing is I've put a form on Church Center, the Church Center app, where you can ask questions. And I will answer those questions depending on how many I get and how much overlap there is between the questions. I'll either do an extra week on this and just answer questions, or I'll do some kind of video where I'll just answer you directly. I will answer the questions if they're legit questions and you're not just trying to annoy me with spamming questions, all right? I know some of you and what you will do, but it's all right. It's just going to happen. Owen, I'm looking at you. All right, so that's there on the Church Center app. There's a form there you can ask questions, and you can ask your question anytime, even in the middle of the sermon. Pull your phone out and ask it. It's totally fine. Um, I hope that covers all the bases, all right? So um, a couple of things to get us started. Uh, the transgender movement in our culture has become muddied and complicated by the fact that there are two things overlapping at the same time. Number one, there are people that are experiencing a very real war between their mind and their body. It's very, clinicians often compare it to anorexia. We kind of have an understanding in our culture of what that's like. It's very similar. This is called gender dysphoria. It's often compared to anorexia. The diagnostic, just to call it the DSM, I'm not going to say all those words. Um, just a quick stat to help you understand this, 0 .001, 0 0.005 to 0.14% of biological males and 0.002 and 0.003 of biological females suffer from gender dysphoria, which is this internal war between your biological sex and what you perceive your gender to be. The saddest stat that I could find is the suicide rate in the general population in the United States is 4%. But among those with gender dysphoria, it's currently 41% and rising. Some say it's more like 43 to 50%. So if you were to take that population and look at it by itself, close to half of those people are committing suicide. Well, that should bother us as Christians. It should really make us pause for a second and ask, what can we do better to reach those people? Most of these people are not interested, interestingly enough, in culture wars or ideological battles that simply want to end their pain, which is why they're committing suicide. They just want to end this pain. They're not out there uh, like mar marching and protesting and arguing over ideologies. They just want an end to their pain. Those people are mixed in with this other group. Layered on top of those genuine sufferers is an ideology that has taken on the characteristics of what I think is like a religious cult. We've all kind of seen examples of this. They treat this ideology like a rite of passage with pseudo-religious tenets that must be evangelized. Agreement with their perspective on gender is the defining factor between what they consider a righteous person or a good person and an unrighteous person. The problem we're experiencing right now is that if you do not approve, they would say, if you do not approve of me, then you reject me. You have a binary choice of how you respond to my ideology. You either completely approve of me or you completely reject me as a person. But Jesus offers a third option, which is love. And what love says, the way Jesus loves, is he says to everybody, I do not approve of you, yet I still embrace you. This is what Jesus does. Every one of us got this kind of love from Jesus. 
Every one of us is a broken sinner when he comes to us and says, I don't like what you're doing, but I'm going to embrace you. And if the world doesn't give us that option, that's where this massive conflict comes. In fact, if someone will not allow you that option, then you're at a dead end. And the only way to open that door is the compassion of Christ. We see Jesus over and over and over again navigate that difficulty amazingly successfully. And that's what we need. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So Christians are called to destroy false ideologies but not destroy people. And this is the dilemma we have because we are being told we don't have that option anymore. If we're not careful, we will begin to see people as enemies and threats to be destroyed, and this is not the way of Jesus. This is most of the content I see, and frankly, most of the sermons I've watched about this issue have treated people as things to be destroyed and not ideologies. Mark Yarhouse says this wonderful quote. He says, We have too many Christians out there who are strong on convictions, but embarrass the name of Christ and how they relate to the world around them. At the same time, we have too many Christians who are remarkably civil, but you would have no idea what convictions they hold. We need both convictions and civility. And he goes on to talk about this idea of, of both conviction and civility running together, that we lead with the compassion of Christ with, but hold to our convictions. And that is not impossible to do. We feel like it is, but that's a lie. It is not, Jesus did it all the time. But you have Christ in you, so you should be able to do it too, all right? It's something we can actually do. He says that most people tend to be either very strong in conviction and weak on compassion or strong on compassion and weak on you know, conviction. And so when, you've, when you sense the preacher or whoever leaning, if you're a conviction person, and you sense that things are moving towards compassion, you start feeling very unsafe and worried and concerned. Or if you're a compassion person and you feel the preacher moving too far into conviction, you get real nervous. And you need to be real honest with yourself about which you are. And recognize that we all need our consciences tuned by the gospel and not just by our own experiences and our own personality. Right now, you're trying to under, figure out which way I'm going to go. Is he going to be too nice or too mean? And every, everybody's nervous, wondering which I'm going to be. I'm hoping to do both, to be full of conviction and full of compassion. And Yarhouse makes this great point that Jesus always led with compassion. Over and over and over again, we see him. It's like Jesus was moved with compassion, and he moved towards people. That was the thing that was up front, but he never dropped his convictions. So if you're struggling, I want to speak to anybody struggling with gender identity this morning. Or you're just struggling to come to grips with your sexuality. I want you to know fundamentally that the gospel is good news for you. It is actually good news. And I'm hoping to show you that, to prove it to you this week and next week. Jesus really does love you and he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to carry a cross. He defined the idea. He coined the term, take up your cross and follow me. So you're carrying a heavy burden, and he knows better than anyone what that's like. 
So let's define some terms, and then we'll get into 1 Corinthians together. First of all, what, what is meant by the term sexual orientation? It's a sexual attraction that is strong and persistent over time, so that would be gay, lesbian, straight, and more, uh, more every day. Those are examples. Biological sex, this is Mark Yarhouse's definition, which I liked. It says male or female, typically with reference to chromosomes, internal reproductive anatomy, and external genitals. So that's your biological, physical anatomy, all right? And then gender identity is a person's internal self-perception of whether they are male or female, an ex external expression in types of dress, personality, likes, dislikes, manner of speaking, etc. So gender, biological sex, and I would say also just our understanding of the physical body have traditionally been tied directly together. That's what, if you're over the age of probably 30 at this point, that's what you grew up with. That's, that was the worldview you understood. Like they're all kind of the same, in the same soup. But what our culture has done is separate them out as separate things that we can mold and change and it might even change every day, depending on your outlook. I want to develop a robust theology of both the human body and gender and sexuality. I want to show you that in Christ, these things can become fully integrated. So let's talk about, well, by the way, the word theology, don't let that scare you off. You're, if you're a Christian, you're a theologian. It's just who is God and who am I and what does God say about the world? That's all that is, all right? So what does God say just if we just think about the human body? I would wager most of you have not ever thought about this because it doesn't get talked about very much. But our culture has an underlying belief that the physical human body is unimportant and is just a thing that is not actually part of who we are. And we can do with it whatever we want. And I want to question that. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses this idea he starts with a different problem in the church but his reasoning of how he answers the problem is very important for us okay so in the church in this church that he's writing to they've written him a letter and in that letter he has discovered that there are some people in this church who are going to visit prostitutes not only are they going to visit prostitutes but they are boasting about it talking about it as though that's a good thing now, that might be hard for you to get your head around, right? But that's what's happening in this church, and he's going to address this problem, all right? So look at this. He's going to quote, you'll see quotation marks. The quotation marks is he's quoting what they said probably in their letter, and then he's going to respond to what they said, okay? Verses 12 to 20, he says, quote, I have the right to do anything, end quote, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He quotes again. I have the right to do anything, end quote, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, quote, for the, for the stump, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Wow. Your physical body are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become flesh, one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's interesting. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So apparently, these people in this church were had some, what they thought of as a theological reason for why it was good and right for them to go visit prostitutes. The first quote we have is, he says, all things are lawful for me, or I have the right to do anything I want to do with my body. That was what they were saying. This is almost, this is a very hard to translate uh, phrase in Greek. It's a colloquialism. It's a saying that they would say. I can do whatever I want. I have the right to do whatever I want. The word there for lawful has to do with authority, authority to choose or determine for yourself what you will do or not do. Does it sound familiar? I mean, a lot of Christians feel that way about their body. I can do with it what I want. He quotes it again in verse 12, saying where it says, I have the right to do anything but not be mastered by anything. This points to the first reason why they believed visiting prostitutes was good and right. They felt that since they could do it, then it was allowed. We don't really know why they thought they could do it. It's pretty clear that, you know, throughout the whole Old Testament, which is their Bible at the time, that God was not cool with prostitution. But somehow they had developed some kind of doctrinal or logical reasoning that said, it's okay, and if it's okay to do it, we should do it, and we're going to. Then there's this other interesting quote, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. I think this is even clearer. Their thinking was, God's gonna, my body is going to rot and go in the grave. It's unimportant. God is going to destroy it. Therefore, just enjoy it and do with it what you want because it's, not, it's just going to go in the ground and go away. It's unimportant. It's just a thing. That it's, a, it's my my skin suit that I walk around and live in. It's just flesh and bones, and that's all it's good for. It's not part of who I am. We're all going to die and bodies waste away in the ground. The body is for pleasure. That's that food metaphor. The body is for pleasure and to be used up until it runs down, nothing more. But this is not what God's design is. And that's Paul's answer. He takes this idea and he says, that's wrong, let me tell you why. And he connects it to God as the creator and Jesus as the one who resurrects us, all right? Paul's primary answer to both of those errors is the centerpiece of his theology about the human body and it's also about the resurrection of Jesus. If the body is not important to God, then why did Jesus resurrect Christ in his body? Jesus came and took on flesh. He took on a body. And then he died. And when he was risen from the dead, he did not rise as a spirit in the form that he was in before he came. Before Christmas, Christ is with God in heaven. He was there at creation in a non-physical form. And he took on flesh and came down. Well, why didn't he just return to that form at the resurrection? He stayed in a body. Paul says the point for that, at least part of it is, is that our body is not incidental to us as people. It is a part of who you are. And Jesus has a physical body 
for eternity. When you see him, you will see him in the flesh. He is forever identified with us in the flesh. Your body is just, you will be resurrected. That's good news. I'm going to die one day, and they're going to put me in the ground, and I'm going to turn to dirt. But when Jesus returns, he resurrects my body out of the ground, and I will forever have a physical body. Now, that's, that's spits in the face of this Gnostic idea that my body doesn't matter and I can do with it what I want. It's just going to rot and be destroyed, so who cares? Who you are is directly tied to what you look like. God designed all of us. That's amazing. I mean, this is not just stuff and cells and flesh and bone. This is God's design. Yeah. I'll be skinnier. I'm <laughs> yeah. Airbrushed. That's right. I'll have chiseled features. So the second reason Paul gives, aside from the, re the resurrection itself, is that we are joined with Christ. And he says specifically, our members, our bodies, are joined with Christ. Now that's mysterious, I know. But it's also amazing. That our, we are physically indwelt by the Spirit. Now, I don't understand that. But somehow, the Holy Spirit that is in all of us, if you're a believer, it's not just this kind of meta, metaphysical reality. There is a physical reality to that, is what he says. Becoming one flesh, then, with a prostitute, in their case, with a body that is also unified with Christ, is a terrible defilement. Because Jesus is not... Just in your spirit, he is in you, your whole person, a fully integrated human being. And you have taken part of that integrated human being that Christ has joined to and unified it with a prostitute. And he says, that should bother you. You are sinning against Jesus, but interestingly, he says, you are also sinning against your own body, which is a fascinating way to put it. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ does not only indwell our spirits, he indwells our physical bodies. So our, our bodies are meant to be used for worship, not for defilement. So your body is sacred. It's not just part of you. That's important, number one. It's not just important to the, to our, to, to the picture of the resurrection and the resurrection that's coming for us. It's also important because it's sacred. It is holy. It's meant to be set apart for worship. Your body is part of what he paid for by his death and sanctified by his resurrection. It is not incidental, inconsequential, or temporary. It is vital to who God created you to be. It's important enough that he died for it, and it's eternal. See, this shifts, I think, our understanding of ourselves and who we are. Our whole identity begins to get changed when we start to realize that this thing that I'm living in is part of me and it's forever. So is it my body and my choice or is it God's body, God's choice? Clearly the creator of your body and the one that died to resurrect your body lays claim to being the ultimate authority over your body. So the question is always, 
in response to this, this, I think, basic doctrine of Christianity is, well, first of all, what about intersex people? People who are born with two biological sexes, the, the parts of both, and they have to choose. Or what about someone that has transitioned, physically transitioned, but now wants to follow Jesus? What does this mean for them? I found this wonderful scripture that addresses this about as directly as I can imagine the Bible addressing it. In this text, Jesus is asked a tricky question about divorce, so don't get thrown by his discussion of divorce, because buried in here, not so deeply, is a theological answer to that question. All right, So I want you to watch this and don't get thrown, like, why are we talking about divorce all of a sudden? You'll see it, all right? I want to point out the principles that Jesus stands on as well as how he ends in verse 12. So first, Matthew 19, 3 through 12. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Which was kind of the custom at the time. Man could give, write on a piece of paper, I divorce you, and then leave his wife that easily. And the question was, is that okay? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis directly. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He says, so divorce is not part of God's original plan for male and female. Moses allowed it because of your hardness of heart, but it's not God's design, okay? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In verse 10, the disciples said to him, so kind of two aside, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> Marriage ain't easy. That's what they're saying. That seems kind of harsh, Jesus. You mean I'm, I have to stay married my whole life? Yes, boys. Yes, you must. Right? That's what he's saying. He's like, why marry? All right? Well, that's a whole other sermon. All right? Uh, verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So this is interesting. If you don't know what a eunuch is, I'm going to tell you, and I'm sorry, all right? But you need to know this, okay? Eunuchs were men that had been castrated either by their own hand, someone else, like a king, for example, that wanted to control them, um, subjugate them, or keep them from their wives. Seems like a terrible gig. Or from birth. And this was done either by crushing with a stone that part, or piercing or cutting. This is how they did it. And Jesus, interestingly, acknowledges not only the two obvious categories, which was it was done to you by someone or by your own hand, but he acknowledges a third category, which is you were born this way. You were born 
intersects or some version of that. And what he says is, all three are there, and all three have a place in the kingdom of God. But there's more. Isaiah 56, if you start following this trail scripturally, Isaiah 56, 3 to 5, says something I think is amazing. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is a promise specific to those that have physically altered themselves or were born physically altered born outside the norm that Jesus affirms in Matthew of male and female. To those outside of that created norm, he has a specific promise in Isaiah. If you will receive your identity from God, give him your entire self, including your body, then you will not only not be a dry tree, but you can have a better spiritual and physical inheritance than those that, not, that, than those that did not struggle as you did. You can be fruitful. That's what he says. So if this, is, if this is you, you need to see that. There's a verse in the Bible for you. A specific promise to you. Out of all the categories of human beings, that God gives direct and specific promises to of blessing and fruitfulness. He calls you out in Isaiah among all the others. And he says, believe me, you do not have to be a dry tree. I will give you an inheritance. If you will give me yourself, that's what he's saying. Make covenant with me, follow me, give me your whole self, receive your full identity from me, and I will make you more fruitful than those that do not suffer with the same ailment. Can you imagine that? Isaiah 53 refers to Christ as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but he is also the one who turns the mourning into dancing. Now, I don't want to pretend like this would not be hard that this is easy. Following in the way of Jesus means taking up your cross and following him into his death. It, it means that for everybody. Everybody in this room is carrying a cross of some sort. There's something that you are dying to every single day, and if you're going to walk in the way of Jesus, on the road of Jesus, the path of Jesus goes right through Golgotha. It goes right through death. But what's on the other side of that? So on the other side of the death is a resurrection. It's what Paul says about the physical body. It belongs to him, and it's going to get resurrected. It's forever. And you are forever. Because you're also following him into his resurrection. There's joy at the other side of the pain. And the joy that Christ promises there is so great that it will make any death you die here seem like nothing in comparison. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not 
you don't have to carry a cross and you don't have to be burdened and your life is going to be easy peasy. All you have to do is just wait it out. Everything's going to be fine and Jesus will make your life easy. That is not the promise of the gospel. That's not where the good news lies. The good news lies in what you get at the resurrection. But you're going to have to die. Every single one of you. Whether you're, you're transgender or you're gay, lesbian, bi, straight, whatever the thing is, there's going to be a denial that feels backbreaking at the time. It feels like death. But the promise is you will not be a dry tree. You will bear fruit because I will make you bear fruit. And I will bring life to the death. I will bring life to the dead tree and make it bear fruit. This is the gospel. Whatever else you thought it was, <laughs> this is the real gospel, and this is why it's good news. What the world will tell you is that the gospel, the good news, is that you can recreate yourself in your own image. You can take your body and you can force it into whatever mold you would have it go into. And this is not just over gender and sexuality. This is everything. You don't want to be short. You don't have to be short anymore. You don't like the way your whatever works. You can change it and alter it in whatever way you want. Make yourself look like that movie star you saw in that movie you loved. You can shape and fashion yourself into whatever form you want, and that is not what God says. The good news is that he made you and designed you, and he thinks you're beautiful as he made you. And when we come under him and submit to his identity for us, there's life. And I want to propose to you that this is a far better message than trying to destroy people. To present a compelling, this gospel is good news for everybody. And if you are at war with yourself, then I have compassion for that. And there's a promise for you. And I want you to see what it means. Amen. So I'd like to pray not just for those who struggle with this or have some, know someone that struggles with this, but I want to pray for all of us that we would carry our cross well. Um, I am burdened personally that I have people come to me and tell me that they struggle with these things but they don't feel like they can tell anybody else in this church. And that's not good. There's, there, we need to carry our cross with grace, but also openly. Because what that does is it creates a culture and an environment in which people who are also bearing a cross alone and silently can then say, this is the cross I'm bearing, without shame or embarrassment. But when we all pretend like we're not carrying a cross, that life is easy. And when I met Jesus, everything was all fine and dandy. And I'm just cruising along like the holiest of the holies. Then we create an environment where people can't confess things and talk about what they're struggling with. And so I actually want to pray not just for those who are struggling with these issues, but for the rest of us, that we would actually visibly carry our cross with grace and openness and humility. And that this would be a church that actually embraces people even when we don't approve of them.
that we love like Jesus, that we have people of compassion and conviction both. Amen? And I think that starts not just with our messaging, but it actually starts with how we deal with our own brokenness. Amen? So could we stand up together? and That's what I want to pray for this morning. Lord Jesus, I first of all pray for anyone that is silently struggling, whether here in this room or out there on the internet that might come across this or anybody connected to the people here, God, that is struggling with these issues and it just feels like the church has just stiff-armed them where the message has been, whether intentionally or unintentionally, has been that there's no blessing, there's no promise for you. The gospel is not good news for you. Lord, I pray that they would see the truth, that you know them and you see them and you love them and you're calling them into yourself and you're calling them into wholeness and that you promise fruitfulness for them. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us who have different struggles, different crosses to bear. God, would you rid us of shame? Teach us how to be honest about ourselves, how to carry our cross with dignity and grace humility, and openness. God, that we would be a community of believers who are honest about themselves. God, that this will be a place where people can confess things, can talk about things that they struggle with, that with freedom and without fear, Without fear of what will people think, what will people say, will I be shut out of certain opportunities, will I not be allowed to do certain things or lead certain things or be in a certain place or have certain friends because of the things that I'm struggling with. God, rid us of that, that the grace of Christ would rule over us. Make us free people. And God, we cling to that promise that we We'll not say of ourselves, we are a dry tree. But instead, we embrace your promise that you will make us more fruitful than the brothers and sisters in the family. God, I ask that that would be our message in the name of Jesus. Amen.